This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Welcome to this week's Max and Murphy podcast from Gotham Gazette and City Limits. We're very happy this week to be joined by two guests. We have today City Council Member Helen Rosenthal. Welcome. And we have former City Controller, Brooklyn District Attorney, and Member of Congress Liz Holtzman. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So thanks, both of you, for joining us. And, and today we want to talk about what has been a very long and with fits and starts process of improving the city's anti-sexual harassment laws and not just improving the laws but trying to figure out what is even going on and what the policies have been um, in city government. So uh, Liz, you you um, had a lot to do with this, this push and, and the effort behind this. Tell us a little bit about um, what you tried to do as city controller and how that went. Well, thank you very much for um, that introduction and for uh, having me on this podcast. I, 25 years ago, quarter of a century ago, I was city controller, and uh, I was the first woman in that position, so far the only woman. Um, and in that position, one of my jobs was to understand how the city was functioning, and it wasn't only financial, but this had a financial impact. I wanted to know what was happening with city employees in terms of sexual harassment. Were they being protected under the city laws? Were the laws being enforced for city employees? I'm talking about employees of the city government itself, not all private employees in the city, but just city government employees. And so uh, I discussed this with my staff, and we decided we were going to try to find out what the lay of the land was first before we did anything else. What's going on in these agencies? And so we asked the individual agencies, all the agencies of New York City, to provide us with information about how many complaints of sexual harassment had been made, what was the nature of those complaints, and what was done about those complaints. And to my utter astonishment, their answer was, we're not telling you. <laughs> and this was 1993. Three. They were not going to tell. And we kept saying we need to have it, and I was getting so angry that I was about to go to court to sue the city over getting this information. Finally, one agency relented, the Department of Transportation, and we looked at their materials. We looked at the complaints that were filed, and we looked at how they were handled. And to our dismay, what we discovered was that the victims, if they reported, were further victimized. Basically nothing happened if at most a slap on the wrist uh, to any perpetrator, but basically nothing happened and it was mostly women were continuing to be subjected to sexual harassment, m meaning that their lives were miserable on the job. This also exposed the city to financial uh, liability because the city was perpetuating a situation that was unlawful. Right. <laughs> so I wanted to see it change, but by the time we got the Department of Transportation information, it was the end of my tenure as mm. controller. And so all that we did, or could do at that time, was to issue a report. That was 25 years ago, where we documented this problem and called on the city to start understanding how the agencies were operating and to protect city workers from sexual harassment. And there the problem lay for 25 years until I wrote an editorial, an op-ed in the <laughs> Daily News, Helen Rosenthal, this wonderful member of the city council, read it 
and she said, I'm going to do something about this problem. 25 years of inaction is just it's an remarkable. outrage. Yeah. But now we've had you know, this fabulous co uh, council member. She introduced legislation. We've, other members of the city council have all participated. It's a very much of a joint venture on that. And the city's behind now, at least on paper, changing the attitude towards sexual harassment. What's actually going to happen? I think it's going to be up to, <laughs> to be determined. Uh, Council Member Rosenthal and other members of the City Council to make sure that city government enforces the law the way, the way it should be and protects its employees. I, re I remember reading that op-ed, I think, in February, and um, and a lot of us in and around city government certainly took notice, and, and it spurred people to ask questions, and it certainly spurred, um, as you said, Liz, legislative action. Um, Council Member, we want to... Um, Tell us a little bit about how you push this forward. Well, I have to say, um, I'm so lucky, Liz, that you wrote that op-ed. And then, you know, it's a new term. So uh, now Speaker Corey Johnson gave me the honor of being the chair of the Committee on Women, at which point my inner rabid feminist has <laughs> emerged. And um, he really let me take off uh, uh, with this topic. And um, his office helped develop this legislation. Lots of members had submitted ideas. Um, and what we ended up with was an 11 bill package, um, anti-sexual uh, harassment in the workplace package, which was very exciting. And we, we and the mayor happily signed it into law like a month later. So, so that's terrific. What we learned from um, then controller Holtzman's report is about the multifaceted layers here. Not only do you have to know what's going on, which even this administration didn't, you know, have the records. They were necessarily supposed to be keeping. Um, the media was great about asking for that. Um, but so we needed definite uh, annual reports um, so we can have baseline information. But obviously, and especially because we don't know the, the number of complaints that are out there, um, it's pretty common sense to know that there have to be annual trainings and that um, managers need to be educated to know that they are liable if they do not report um, an, a, a complaint of sexual harassment that's brought to them. Um, but then we went even further in two ways. One is that we applied these laws to the private sector. So now any firm that has 15 or more employees must have an annual sexual harassment training. Every single worker, including domestic workers, are covered by the city's very strong human rights law. So that if you're not going to get relief under the state or federal law, you can come to the city. Um, everyone will be educated about this because we're going to have posters that have to go up in every single business explaining to people what sexual harassment is and how to report what your rights are and how to report it to get relief. So that's one way we took it a step further. The other way that I think is absolutely critical is for the city workers, you know, over 300,000, 
We now require a follow-up survey to the sexual harassment trainings, an anonymized survey to say to employees, so you've had the training now, it's been, you know, a couple of months, has there been a change? What are you feeling in the workplace? Do you feel like you're uh, better protected, that you have someone to go to? And with the results of that survey, the agencies are required to come up with an action plan and implement it. And one of the key things that I fought so hard for is the requirement for that survey doesn't sunset. So to, to Liz's point about it being a quarter of a century later, our hope is that a quarter of a century from now, um, you know, the elected officials who will be watching over the city agencies have tools to make sure that um, women culturally are uh, have an even playing field in the workplace. Yeah, that that's a very interesting provision about continuing to assess the culture and then having to act on whatever the feedback might be, assuming there is something you know that's brought up in those surveys to to then address. Um, Liz, from your perspective, where, so I, oh, I also wanted to mention that these, for government, so you mentioned it extends to the private sector, which was a, seemingly a, a, a major action to take, and I wanted to ask if there was pushback on that. Um, but first, also in city government, it's not just agencies under the mayor's control, but it applies to the city council, it applies to the borough presidencies, controller's office, public advocate. So this goes across city government. So the city council can't legislate about itself. So we changed our bylaws to make mm -hmm. sure that the council has to do Adopt this as well. Yeah, right. But that's right. And even the hospitals, um, which is a non-mayoral agency, and NYCHA. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, didn't, I don't think I saw that those two authorities were, were captured. And DOE. And Department DOE, of Education. Do, well, so, all right. Since you brought up DOE, I wanted to ask. I don't know if... if both of you saw this comment from the mayor, but the mayor, when they did finally release data, um, the city had to accumulate it. They they had admitted the you know the de Blasio administration admitted you know what we've never assessed this, we've never asked for this data. We had to call it from all the different agencies, and they presented some data. And you know the Department of Education is the largest agency, um, so it would make sense for it to have the highest number. But it had the highest number of sexual harassment complaints and issues by far, definitely going well beyond what proportionality, I think, would, would dictate. And the mayor's response when asked about why he thought that was the case or what the issues were, he said that it's it's been fairly well known, I think the quote was, that there's been a hyper-complaint dynamic at DOE, and he got himself in some hot water and sort of walked that back a bit. But what's your assessment, and, and I don't know if you want to... I mean, I, I have to say from my perspective, uh, as chair of the Committee on Women, I've heard people say appalling things. And my um, guiding philosophy is not to hear the first thing they say. The most recent thing that the mayor has said is that he's behind it 100%. He wants to implement these bills and wants to look at the data fairly and rationally. That's what I care about. What needs to but, happen? Oh, go ahead. Well, that's the most important thing. What are the facts? I mean, we nobody wanted to pay any attention to this problem. It, it didn't even register. No one was collecting data. Nobody was examining it. Uh, and that's really, to me, astonishing that for a quarter of a century this didn't happen. But I think 
the Me Too movement is part of also what gave impetus to doing something about this. And I think it's critical to, to keep an eye on what's going on because people can just say, oh, yeah, sure, uh, this is the reason, or people, you know, we have zero complaints, but people may have zero complaints because they're being harassed if they make complaints. So it's really vital to do what Helen has talked about doing, which is to get the facts, whether you think there's a over-reporting or an under-reporting, just get the facts of what's happened with these complaints, how have they been handled, how do people in the agencies feel about whether they're getting a fair shake, and whether they feel that this problem is persisting, because it's an outrage to force city workers and really people in the private sector to have to work under these conditions. We have federal laws that prohibit it, we have state laws, and we have city laws. And just to say, well, we don't have to pay attention to it because we have laws on the books. We know that if it's not enforced, it's not going to work. It's like having laws on murder or right. on rape or on anything else. If you're not going to enforce the laws, they're not going to they're not going to work. So we need to do that. Well, Liz, I want to pick up on your point about back 25 years ago, people had maybe the city court council or the lawyers trying to quote unquote protect the city had concerns from a financial perspective, and. I think that perspective is no longer tolerated. You know, if we were to have a culture of non-harassment, you're not going to have to worry about lawsuits. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, this notion that, oh, I'm worried that the city's going to get sued, fine, gets, you know, we shouldn't, that shouldn't be a hurdle to changing the culture. No, that should be an impetus to changing yeah. the culture, actually, because the city should avoid having to pay out settlements when if it addressed the problem properly, we wouldn't have to pay settlements. I mean, so... Oh, I mean, we're seeing this type of discussion in terms of how police accountability works, exactly. right? The settlements with the NYPD have been large and consistent, and new laws have sought to address some of that and bring it to light. We pointed that out also <laughs> 25 <laughs> years ago, right. but, oh. but that's the point here that, you know, that one, you could look at it from a financial point of view because the people who are injured here in, are not just the victims of the sexual harassment, but taxpayers in this city who have to pay for settlements because the city didn't protect right. city workers. So everybody is harmed by the, by the city's taking a, a see-no-evil approach and allowing this situation to persist and fester. And, and it's got to root your, it out. One of your successors, the current controller, Scott Stringer, developed this claim stat tool to show where all the claims are happening around the city. And it'll be very interesting if we now have this data required to see how that shows itself on, in that tool. Right, but you Absolutely. have to go behind the claims. You have to see what's happening. It's not just the claims themselves, but what's happening to these claims. Are they being, you know, are the victims being protected? Are the, are the laws being enforced? So just having the number of statistics is not by itself. And that's where you so, partially come in. Well, <laughs> I have to say, Liz, the city hasn't yet, our laws yet aren't as far along as the second piece of what you're describing, um, which is follow up on, you know, the, the so what question. So we've, uh, you know, so now we've enacted laws that say you have to, you know, take a claim, a, a complaint seriously and report it up and investigate. We have to report on those claims. 
but we are going to be introducing a second package of bills okay. this fall, which get to the so what question and um, the follow-up. And, and I, I fully believe we can do this in a, an anonymized way. So what happened with those complaints? Correct. What was the outcome? Mm -hmm. what, and what were the penalties that were invoked for the cases that were found to be true? Another bill that I think is going to be incredibly important that we're going to introduce, oh, we've already introduced, but we're going to hear, is um, there has to be a presumption of innocence on the woman's part. In other words, uh, researchers have found that one in ten cases is not true, right? And people use that statistic to say all women are lying when they bring forward a complaint. It's only one in 10. So 90% of the time, it's absolutely true, and we have to pursue this. But um, there's no presumption that the woman right now is telling the truth. And so she's not really protected under the retaliation laws. Let me ask another aspect of the so what dimension, which is, you know, other city laws and regulations set out what is wrongdoing, and this is merely a new phase of that. But you will hear constant stories about people in the rubber room who should have been fired but they can't because of civil service laws, barriers to punishing city workers for violations of rules and laws. The city civil service system, uh, collective bargaining, are those places where there'll need to be tweaks or reforms in order to, once you have the reporting mechanism in place, punish bad behavior? Look, the rules are already in place as to what the punishments are. So, I, I mean, unions are there uh, for due process in this case. That's all the union rule says is due process. So, of course, the city is going to give everyone due process. And there are rules, and if you violate those rules, there and are... And those are robust enough to Absolutely. Um, I believe so. It's, it's more of a front-end issue of, of a figuring out the real extent of the problem. That's exactly right. It's a cultural shift that has to happen. And what these bills do is push that cultural shift along. I want to get to the uh, former controllers, and I focus on that because that's <laughs> where this brilliance came from. But um, it, what you just mentioned about, you know, homicide is important and we follow up, rape's important, we follow up, NYPD follows up, actually... I don't think that's true at all. I mean, the next set of hearings that we had after the sexual harassment hearings were about how the NYPD treats rape victims who come in the door and say they've been raped. And what we found is, you know, according to all the um, models that are out there nationally, we're woefully understaffed you know, in the, in the special victims division. And so for the adult cases, frankly, all the cases, um, they're understaffed. So women who come forward are really discouraged. You know, you come forward, you're told that an SVD detective is going to, you're in the hospital and you're told the SVD detective will be there in two hours. It's 24 hours later, you're still laying around in the hospital bed. And that's what's, that's the information that's gotten out to New Yorkers. And so, you know, it's not just that we think 
rape is tremendously underreported. I mean, there are about 5,600 cases of sexual violence, sexual assault in some way. We think the real number is 50,000, so it's underreported. But the whole mentality in the NYPD is one where you treat a rape just like you treat a homicide. In other words, you want to bring the numbers down. You want to convict these people. You want to go after them, you know, your detectives go after them, build a case and convict. And that's ridiculous. That's not what rape is about at all. I mean, rape, you have to shift the entire mentality and culture to these are people who you want to come forward. You want to build their trust. So you want them to... Um, feel comfortable talking to the police. And right now, we have understaffed, woefully understaffed SVD, and not really um, experienced. And no, sorry to get off on another topic, and we can talk about this another time, but no mechanism right now in the NYPD to keep experienced SVD detectives. No interest in caring about it. Look, the whole, um, you know, women stuff, which is really problems that men have, um, is whether it be harassment, whether it be groping, whether it be sexual violence, the culture doesn't want to hear about it and constantly makes it backwater. And until we bring it forward, keep talking about it, keep making it very blatant, in in the media or you know drawing people's attention to it over and over we need to start making that cultural shift or else we're going to land 25 years from now in the exact place um, with very little information your experience as brooklyn district attorney you were the first woman elected as a aid any district attorney in in any of the um, counties in new york city um does, does, does things, are there aspects of that experience that, you know, speak to what um, the council member was just speaking about? I mean, you know, when you um, came into that office, you know, did you have to bump up against that culture? Of course. It was not just a culture. It, it, was, it, was, not, it was much more uh, malign because the laws, well, started out blaming women. We had laws when I became district attorney in New York State that required corroboration. So a woman's word was worthless. Why? This went back for centuries. That if the woman uh, complained about rape, she was probably the instigator. You know, tight dress, provocative look. It's her fault. Blame the woman. So we had corroboration requirement. A woman's word was worth, <laughs> was okay in a robbery, a, a burglary, a murder case, anything, but not with regard to rape. You now had to have a, a witness. Well, how many rapes are there going to be witnesses? It's ridiculous. So we got that law changed, and then they wouldn't change that law properly. They said, okay, we'll take away the corroboration requirement, but a woman is going to have to fight back, put up, quote-unquote, earnest resistance. So if the woman didn't fight back, it wasn't a rape. You couldn't prosecute someone for rape. So we got rid of that law. I mean, just getting the laws to treat women as equals under the rape laws, that was the first right, challenge. You have to do that before you even right. and then the we NYPD. And then we had to, and I played a major role in all of that, and then we also, in New York State, had to deal with the fact that rape in marriage was still legal. 
And so we fought that problem and got that changed. So just talking about the basics of the law, and yes, we had to start rape evidence kits were just being used at that time. We had to work with all the hospitals. I was Brooklyn DA. We worked with all the hospitals in Brooklyn to make sure that they had these kids, that they were trained in using them. We had to also train doctors and people uh, dealing with those as to how to how to handle them and how to what verbiage to use about them and train. We had specially trained DAs in the office, assistant district attorneys. We also developed a whole system to handle child victims using closed-circuit TV. That case went to the Supreme Court. It's never been used, apparently, in New York State to avoid having children testify in court before the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Change the law on, on grand jury uh, testimony. A child doesn't have to go before the grand jury can be uh, taped in a private setting. Uh, without the trauma of being before 23 strangers. So we made a lot of changes to facilitate the prosecution. I'm astonished to hear that this has become a backwater in the police department, and that's one of the reasons that we need to have uh, an alert uh, member of the city council, more than one, because one person can't make all these changes. But we have cultural problems. The issue of violence against women is not seen always as that important. So I'm not, I, I am surprised in a way because this, the police department seemed to be, when I was DA, alert to this problem. But, you know, we have a president of the United States who thinks that assaulting women sexually is just fine, and there are people, millions of Americans, who vote for him. So it shows that the attitudes about violence against women and the acceptability of that goes very deep. People say, oh, well, it's just locker talk. It's not locker talk. It's locker action. Mm. And it's action out in the real world. So uh, I'm concerned about that. Mentioning your experience in the DA's office as a, as a woman in that office referring to uh, a, a veteran woman on the city council raises the question of, and this came up in an article that Gotham Gazette published critiquing, about a critique of the state's policies. But people drawing the line between the environment in the workplace in, in public life um, and the lack of representation of women in elective office, that there is a direct connection both ways. Obviously, women being in place to make better laws and better rules, but that the culture discourages people or, or, or creates another obstacle to women getting elected to office or choosing to run in the first place. Do you feel that that is true? A thousand percent, <laughs> of course. I think it's, I mean, obviously, there are only, you know, the number of women in the council was at a high point um, when, the, when the city council of 51 members was first created. I think there were 21 members, and now we're down to 11 women out of 51. So thank you for bringing that up. Absolutely, yes. There's no thought of, um, for my individual council member, I want that person to be a woman, and I'm going to include that in part of my calculus when I look at the people running. Hopefully that's beginning to change. I think it's true when you talk about a culture of, you know, women not being, you know, um, accepted in the boardroom or in the top areas of management. I love that uh, someone said there are more CEOs named John than there are women who are CEOs. Um, it really the shift in the culture has to be in every aspect um, of uh, of the workplace, 
whether it be private sector, the, the elected officials, or in the municipal sector, I think what we've found is that um, when women are in the room, whether it's elected office or if it's in finance, you're going to have a better outcome. And, you know, it's, um, I think the people, it, it makes sense to me that the people who have those jobs now feel threatened and will do everything they can to shift the conversation so that people don't have to confront the fact that, you know, women should be in the room. So, well, I oh, just want to add to that. I mean, my uh, experience with this, uh, and I completely agree with uh, Councilmember Rosenthal, my experience with this has been um, exactly what she said. I just, when I was in Congress, most of the bills that affected the lives of women were introduced by other women, members of Congress. I mean, I remember, who was the woman who, who, who changed the law so women could get bank credit or financing credit in their own right, not in their husband's right or whatever? That was a congresswoman from Massachusetts. Who introduced the legislation to protect domestics under Social Security? That was Shirley Chisholm. I mean, I could go down that list. It's huge. So that these problems are going to be uh, addressed by women because they themselves have felt them or experienced them or their constituents aren't um, too intimidated or shy about raising them. But just recently, I was appointed and served as chair of a committee, uh, an independent federal entity that was dealing with sexual assault in the military. Why was this created? this entity, which was supposed to monitor what the Defense Department was doing, because the women members of the Senate of the United States and the House of Representatives started screaming at the Pentagon saying, you cannot allow the situation of sexual assault in the military to go on in the way it has with impunity for the, for the assaulters. That's got to come to an end. And they, you know, they had a loud voice, and it wasn't just one. It was a whole number of them who, who screamed about this, and the Pentagon developed a whole series of programs, and my job was to make sure that they were not pushing the problems under the rug, but addressing them. Mm. I'm not saying they could solve them, but this never would have happened um, if it hadn't been for the women members of the House and the Senate, and it was not a partisan issue. Mm. And that has been a focus issue for a home state senator, uh, senator of ours, Kirsten Gillibrand. Correct. So um, I, all I'm saying is that this still right. matters. And Having women that, in office still matters. Sure. And we saw that in the city council even last term with some of the legislation that Jalissa Ferreras Copeland uh, pushed forward. Um, so in our last few minutes here with city council member Helen Rosenthal and former controller former Brooklyn district attorney and former member of Congress, Liz Holtzman. Clearly um, qualified. We won't, yes, yes, very qualified to talk about anything uh, government-related or, or beyond. Um, I just wanted to ask you, Councilmember, um, and, and forgive me if this is just semantic, but the committee that you chair now was called the Committee on Women's Issues, and now this term it's called the Committee on Women. Was that a a very conscious choice, or was it just uh, housekeeping? I don't know. I was just no, it was I, a conscious I, I meaning choice. to ask you about that. Yeah, no, it was a conscious choice. I, um, I'm, a, I don't particularly like all these things being called women's issues. Um, you know, we don't have a committee on men's issues. 
um, you know, I'm hoping to work myself out of a committee, mm -hmm. right? Why does a committee on women even exist? I mean, it exists because men have issues and uh, lay those issues on women. And now women, you know, we have to have a committee <laughs> in order to focus on um, all of those different aspects. But we, uh, there, were, there were some who, who actually, you know, did those uh, thoroughly unscientific polls um, and really couldn't come up with a better name. Mm -hmm. um, so we stuck with Committee on Women. If you or anyone else has a better suggestion, I'm all up. I'm no. I'm I think I think it. the shift you made but even is a, is a good one because I mean we've even uh, wrote something about that a few years ago. Is you know how the how the committee is was named the Committee on Women's Issues and how the council was then also defining that by let's just take for example in budget hearings matching up the Committee on Women's Issues with the Committee on um, general services, which meant, you know, just issues related to homelessness and social services, and that was a sort of a, a telling pairing. That's exactly right. <clears throat> Interestingly, you know, I'm the former chair of the Committee on Contracts. It was never called the Committee on Contract Issues. Um, <laughs> right. 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 Anything uh, yeah, to just take us last, out on? As a last question, I'll, I'll direct this to you, uh, former DA Comptroller and Congresswoman. First, um, we re refer to the cultural moment we're in of people having this conversation about power and gender and harassment. And I'm wondering, do you feel this is something that's going, what do you think the trajectory of that is going to be? Have we permanently changed the way we're talking about that, maybe slightly, maybe dramatically? Or is this possibly going to fade away in a few months when we begin talking about some something else? Well, you know, power is not relinquished. <laughs> without a real challenge to it. I think Frederick Douglass said that many, many years ago. It hasn't changed. I think that the Me Too movement has been, uh, I mean, it's sad that we have to have that, but it's exposed a level of uh, assault on women that's pervasive in this society. At least the problem is being exposed. Is it going to go away? Maybe attention will vanish for a brief period of time, but this problem is not going away. Women have made too many advances, and they're not going to allow their lives to be treated in this fashion. And there are too many men who have daughters or sisters or nieces um, who are going to, or wives, and they're not going to want to see them treated in the workplace this way or not in the workplace, other places. So uh, it hasn't, uh, the problem hasn't been solved yet. As long as we have the groper in chief sitting in the White House, it's not solved because it's a disgrace to anybody who is opposed to sexual assault, his presence there. But I, I think we're making a lot of progress. I think we have to see how deep the problem is when we have a president elected who engages in that behavior. And from the city council, you mentioned another package of bills, and I assume once the training start happening and the data starts rolling in, some other hearings and, and, and such. That's exactly right. And it's why we tried to make reporting um, very much part of the package of laws so that the reports themselves would force the discussion. Look, the truth of the matter is another mayor could just ignore him and sweep him on the rug and just not do the reports. Um, you know, it's a concern. I think that people, there has to be a continued heightened awareness. 
Well, we will leave it there. Thank you both very much for joining us, City Council Member Helen Rosenthal and former many elected offices, <laughs> Liz Holtzman. Thank you both for being here. Thanks, Thanks for you. having us.